Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Continuing chapter five. <laughs> it's a big chapter. Vizzini was waiting for him. Indeed, he had set out a little picnic spread. From the knapsack that he always carried, he had taken a small handkerchief, and on it he had placed two wine goblets. In the center was a small leather wine holder, and beside it, some cheese and some apples. The spot could not have been lovelier. A high point of the mountain path with a splendid view all the way back to Florin Channel. Buttercup lay helpless beside the picnic, gagged and tied and blindfolded. Vizzini held his long knife against her white throat. Welcome, Vizzini called when the man in black was almost upon them. The man in black stopped and surveyed the situation. You've beaten my Turk, Vizzini said. It would seem so. And now it is down to you. And it's down to me. So that would seem too, the man in black said, edging just a half step closer to the hunchback's long knife. With a smile, the hunchback pushed the knife harder against Buttercup's throat. It was about to bring blood. If you wish her dead, by all means keep moving, Vizzini said. The man in black froze. Better, Vizzini nodded. No sound now beneath the moonlight. I understand completely what you're trying to do, the Sicilian said finally, and I want it quite clear that I resent your behavior. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen, and I think it quite ungentlemanly. Let me explain, the man in black began, starting to edge forward. You're killing her, the Sicilian screamed, shoving harder with the knife. A drop of blood appeared now at Buttercup's throat, red against white. The man in black retreated. Let me explain, he said again, but from a distance. Again, the hunchback interrupted. There is nothing you can tell me that I don't already know. I've not had the schooling equal to some... But for knowledge outside of books, there was no one in the world close to me. People say I read minds, but that is not in all honesty true. I merely predict the truth using logic and wisdom, and I say you're a kidnapper. Admit it. I will admit that, as a ransom item, she has value. Nothing more. I've been instructed to do certain things to her. It is very important that I follow my instructions. If I do this properly, I'll be in demand for life. And my instructions do not include ransom. They include death. So, your explanations are meaningless. We cannot do business together. You wish to keep her alive for ransom, whereas it's terribly important to me that she stops breathing in the very near future. Has it occurred to you that I've gone to great effort and expense, as well as personal sacrifice to reach this point? The man in black replied. And that if I fail now, I might get very angry. And if she stops breathing in the very near future, it is entirely possible that you will catch the same fatal illness? I have no doubt that you could kill me. Any man who can get by a Nego and Fezzik would have no trouble disposing of me. However, has it occurred to you that if you did that, then neither of us would get what we want? You having lost your ransom item, me, my life. Right an impasse, then, said the man in black. I fear so, said the Sicilian. 
I cannot compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. You're that smart. There are no words to contain all my wisdom. I'm so cunning, crafty, and clever, so filled with deceit, guile, and chicanery. Such a knave, so shrewd, cagey as well as calculating, as diabolical as I am Volpine, as tricky as I am untrustworthy. Well, I told you are not words invented yet to explain how great my brain is, but let me put it this way. The world is several million years old, and several billion people have at one time or another trod upon it. But I, Vizzini the Sicilian, am, speaking with pure candor and modesty, the slickest, sleekest, slyest, and wiliest fellow who has ever come down the pike. In that case, said the man in black, I challenge you to a battle of wits. Vizzini had to smile. For the princess? You read my mind. It just seems that way, I told you. It's merely logic and wisdom. To the death. Correct again. I accept, cried Vizzini. Begin the battle. Pour the wine, said the man in black. Vizzini filled the two goblets with deep red liquid. The man in black pulled from his dark clothing a small packet and handed it to the hunchback. Open it and inhale, but be careful not to touch. Vizzini took the packet and followed instructions. I smell nothing. The man in black took the packet again. What you do not smell is called iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, and dissolves immediately in any kind of liquid. It also happens to be the deadliest poison known to man. Vizzini was beginning to get excited. I don't suppose you'd hand me the goblet, said the man in black. Vizzini shook his head. Take them yourself. My long knife does not leave her throat. The man in black reached down for the goblets. He took them and turned away. Vizzini cackled aloud in anticipation. The man in black busied himself a long moment. Then he turned again with the goblet in each hand. Very carefully, he put the goblet in his right hand in front of Vizzini and put the goblet in his left hand across the kerchief from the hunchback. He sat down in front of the left-hand goblet and dropped the empty Iocane packet by the cheese. Your guess, he said. Where's the poison? Guess, Vizzini cried. I don't guess. I think. I ponder. I deduce. Then I decide. But I never guess. The battle of wits have begun, said the man in black. It ends when you decide and we drink the wine and we find out who's right and who's dead. We both drink, need I add, and swallow, naturally, at precisely the same time. It's all so simple, said the hunchback. All I have to do is deduce, from what I know of you, the way your mind works. Are you the kind of man who will put the poison into his own glass, or into the glass of his enemy? You're stalling, said the man in black. I'm relishing is what I'm doing, answered the Sicilian. No one has challenged my mind in years, and I love it. By the way, may I smell both goblets? Be my guest. Just be sure you put them down the same way you found them. The Sicilian sniffed his own glass. Then he reached across the kerchief for the goblet of the man in black and sniffed that. As you said, odorless. As I also said, you're stalling. The Sicilian smiled and stared at the wine goblets. Now a great fool, he began, would place the poison in his own goblet because he would know that only another great fool would reach first for what he was given. 
I am clearly not a great fool, so I will clearly not reach for your wine. That's your final choice? No, because you knew I was not a great fool, so you would know that I would never fall for such a trick. You would count on it, so I would clearly not reach for mine either. Keep going, said the man in black. I intend to. The Sicilian reflected a moment. We have now decided the poison cup is most likely in front of you. But the poisonous powder made from Iocane, and Iocane comes only from Australia. And Australia, as everyone knows, is people with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as I don't trust you. Which means I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. The man in black was starting to get nervous. But again, you must have suspected I knew the origins of Iocane. So you would have known I knew about the criminals and criminal behavior. And therefore, I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect, whispered the man in black. You've beaten my Turk, which means you're exceptionally strong. And exceptionally strong men are convinced that they're too powerful ever to die. Too powerful even for Iocane poison. So you could have put it in your cup, trusting on your strength to save you. Thus, I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. The man in black was very nervous now. But you also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied, because he studied many years for his excellence. And if you can study, you are clearly more than simply strong. You're aware of how mortal we all are, and you do not wish to die. So you would have kept the poison as far from yourself as possible. Therefore, I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just trying to make me give something away with all this chatter, said the man in black angrily. Well, it won't work. You'll learn nothing from me. That I promise you. I've already learned everything from you, said the Sicilian. I know where the poison is. Only a genius could have deduced as much. How fortunate for me that I happen to be one, said the hunchback, growing more and more amused now. You, you cannot frighten me said the man in black, but there was fear all through his voice. Shall we drink then? Pick, choose, quick dragging it out. You don't know. You couldn't know. The Sicilian only smiled at the outburst. Then a strange look crossed his features and he pointed off behind the man in black. What in the world can that be? The man in black turned around and looked. I don't see anything. Oh, well, I could have swore I saw something. No matter. The Sicilian began to laugh. <laughs> I don't understand what's so funny, said the man in black. <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute, said the hunchback. But first, let's drink. And he picked up his own wine goblet. The man in black picked up the one in front of him. They drank. You guess wrong, said the man in black. You only think that I guess wrong, said the Sicilian, his laughter ringing louder. That's, that's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. There was nothing for the man in black to say. Fool, cried the hunchback. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. He was quite cheery until the Iocane powder took effect. 
The man in black stepped quickly over the corpse, then roughly ripped the blindfold from the princess's eyes. I heard everything that happened. Buttercup began, and then she said, oh, because she had never been next to a dead man before. You killed him, she whispered finally. I let him die laughing, said the man in black. Pray I'd do as much for you. He lifted her, slashed her bonds away, put her on her feet, started to pull her along. Please, Buttercup said, give me a moment to gather myself. The man in black released his grip. Buttercup rubbed her wrists. Stopped, massaged her ankles. She took a final look at the Sicilian. To think, she murmured, all that time it was your cup that was poisoned. They were both poisoned, said the man in black. I spent the last two years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. Buttercup looked up at him. He was terrifying to her, masked and hooded and dangerous. His voice was strained, rough. Who are you? she asked. I am no one to be trifled with, replied the man in black. That is all you ever need to know. And with that, he yanked her upright. You had your moment. Again, he pulled her after him. And this time, she could do nothing but follow. They moved along the mountain path. The moonlight was very bright, and there were rocks everywhere. And a buttercup, it all looked dead and yellow, like the moon. She had just spent several hours with three men who were openly planning to kill her. So why, she wondered, was she more frightened now than then? Who was the horrid hooded figure to strike fear in her so? What could be worse than dying? I will pay you a great deal of money to release me, she managed to say. The man in black glanced at her. You're rich then. I will be, Buttercup said. Whatever you want for ransom, I promise to get it for you if you let me go. The man in black just laughed. <laughs> I was not speaking in jest. You? Promise? You? I should release you on your promise. What is that worth? The vow of a woman. Oh, that is very funny, Highness. Spoken in jest or not. They proceeded along a mountain path to an open space. The man in black stopped then. There were a million stars fighting for prominence, and for a moment, he seemed to be intent on nothing less than studying them all. As Buttercup watched his eyes flick from constellation to constellation behind his mask. Then, with no warning, he spun off the path, heading in a wild terrain, pulling her behind him. She stumbled. He pulled her to her feet. Again, she fell. Again, he righted her. I cannot move this quickly. You can and you will, or you will suffer greatly. Do you think I can make you suffer greatly? Buttercup nodded. Then run, cried the man in black, and he broke into a run himself, flying across rocks in the moonlight, pulling the princess behind him. She did her best to keep up. She was frightened as to what he would do to her, so she dared not fall again. After five minutes, the man in black stopped dead. Catch your breath, he commanded. Buttercup nodded, gasped for air, tried to quiet her heart. But then they were off again, with no warning, dashing across the mountainous terrain, heading. Where do you take me? Buttercup gasped, when he again gave her a chance to rest. Surely even someone as arrogant as you cannot expect me to give an answer. It does not matter if you tell or not. He will find you. He, Highness? Prince Humperdinck. 
There is no greater hunter. He could track a falcon on a cloudy day. He can find you. You have confidence that your dearest love will save you, do you? I never said he was my dearest love, and yes, he will save me. That I know. You admit you do not love your husband to be. Fancy, an honest woman. You're a rare specimen, Highness. The prince and I have never from the beginning lied to each other. He knows I do not love him. Or not capable of love, is what you mean. I'm very capable of love, Buttercup said. Hold your tongue, I think. I have loved more deeply than a killer like you can possibly imagine. He slapped her. That is a penalty for lying, Highness. Where I come from, when a woman lies, she's reprimanded. But I spoke the truth. I did. I. Buttercup saw his hand rise a second time, so she stopped quickly, fell dead silent. Then they began to run again. They did not speak for hours. They just ran. And then, as if he could guess when she was spent, he would stop, release her hand. She would try to catch her breath for the next dash she was sure would come. Without a sound, he would grab her and off they would go. It was close to dawn when they first saw the armada. They were running along the edge of a towering ravine. They seemed almost to be at the top of the world. When they stopped, Buttercup sank down to rest. The man in black stood silently over her. Your love comes, not alone, he said then. Buttercup did not understand. The man in black pointed back the way they had come. Buttercup stared, and as she did, the waters of Florin Channel seemed as filled with light as the sky was filled with stars. He must have ordered every ship in Florin after you, the man in black said. Such a sight I have never seen. He stared at all the lanterns on all the ships as they moved. You can never escape him, Buttercup said. If you release me, I promise that you'll come to no harm. You're much too generous. I can never accept such an offer. I offered you your life. That was generous enough. Highness, said the man in black, and his hands were suddenly at her throat. If there's talk of life to be done, let me do it. You would not kill me. You did not steal me from murderers to murder me yourself. Wise as well as loving, said the man in black. He jerked her to her feet, and they ran along the edge of the great ravine. It was hundreds of feet deep, and filled with rocks and trees and lifting shadows. Abruptly, the man in black stopped, stared back at the armada. To be honest, he said, I had not expected quite so many. You can never predict my prince. That is why he is the greatest hunter. I wonder, said the man in black, will he stay in one group or will he divide? Some to search the coastline, some to follow your path on land. What do you think? I only know he'll find me. And if you have not given me my freedom first, he will not treat you gently. Surely he must have discussed things with you. The thrill of the hunt. What has he done in the past with many ships? We do not discuss hunting. That I can assure you. Not hunting. Not love. What do you talk about? We do not see all that much of each other. Tender couple. Buttercup could feel the upset coming. We are always very honest with each other. Not everyone can say as much. May I please tell you something, Highness? You're very cold. I'm not. Very cold and very young. And if you live, I think you'll turn to hoarfrost. Why do you pick at me? 
I've come to terms with my life, and that is my affair. I'm not cold, I swear, but I've decided certain things. It is best for me to ignore emotion. I've not been happy dealing with it. Her heart was a secret garden, and the walls were very high. I loved once, Buttercup said after a moment. It worked out very badly. Another rich man? Yes, and he left you for a richer woman? No. Poor. Poor, and it killed him. Were you sorry? Did you feel pain? Admit that you felt nothing. Do not mock my grief. I died that day. The armada began to fire signal cannons. The explosions echoed through the mountains. The man in black stared as the ships began to change formation. And while she was watching the ships, Buttercup shoved them with all her strength remaining. For a moment, the man in black teetered at the ravine edge. His arms spun like windmills fighting for balance. They swung and gripped the air, and then he began to slide. Down went the man in black. Stumbling and torn and reaching out to stop his descent, but the ravine was too steep and nothing could be done. Down, down. Rolling over rocks, spinning, out of all control. Buttercup stared at what she had done. Finally, he rested far below her, silent and without motion. You can die too, for all I care, she said, and then she turned away. Words followed her, whispered from far, weak and warm and familiar. As you wish. Dawn in the mountains, Buttercup turned back to the source of the sound and stared down as, in first light, the man in black struggled to remove his mask. Oh, my sweet Wesley, Buttercup said. What have I done to you now? From the bottom of the ravine, there came only silence. Buttercup hesitated not a moment. Down she went after him, keeping her feet as best she could. And as she began, she thought she heard him crying out to her over and over. But she could not make sense of his words, because inside her now, there were a thunder of walls crumbling, and that was noise enough. Besides, her balance quickly was gone, and the ravine had her. She fell fast, and she fell hard, but what did that matter, since she would gladly drop a thousand feet onto a bed of nails if Wesley had been waiting at the bottom? Down, down. Tossed and spinning, crashing, torn, out of all control, she rolled and twisted and plunged, cartwheeling towards what was left of her beloved. From his position at the point of the armada, Prince Humperdinck stared up at the cliffs of insanity. This was just like any other hunt. He made himself think away to quarry. It did not matter if you were after an antelope or a bride-to-be. The procedures held. You gathered evidence. Then you acted. You studied, then you performed. If you studied too little, the chances were strong that your actions would also be too late. You had to take time. And so, frozen in thought, he continued to stare up at the sheer face of the cliffs. Obviously, someone had recently climbed them. There were foot scratchings all the way up, a straight line, which meant, most certainly, a rope. An arm-over-arm climb up a thousand-foot rope with occasional foot kicks for balance. 
To make such a climb required both strength and planning. So the prince made those marks in his brain. My enemy is strong. My enemy is not impulsive. Now his eyes reached a point perhaps 300 feet from the top. Here it began to get interesting. Now the foot scratchings were deeper, more frequent, and they followed no direct ascending line. Either someone left the rope 300 feet from the top intentionally, which made no sense, or the rope was cut while that someone was still 300 feet from safety. For clearly, this last part of the climb was made up the rock face itself. But who had such talent? And why had he been called to exercise it at such a deadly time, 700 feet above disaster? I must examine the tops of the cliffs of insanity, the prince said, without bothering to turn. From behind him, Count Rugen only said, Done, and awaited further instructions. Send half the armada south along the coastline, the other north. They should meet by twilight near the fire swamp. Our ship will sail to the first landing possibility, and you will follow me with your soldiers. Ready the whites. Count Rugen signaled the cannoneer, and the prince's instructions boomed along the cliffs. Within minutes, the armada had begun to split, with only the prince's giant ship sailing alone close to the coastline, looking for a landing possibility. There, the prince ordered, some time later, and the ship began maneuvering into the cove for a safe place to anchor. That took time, but not much, because the captain was skilled and, more than that, the prince was quick to lose patience, and no one dared risk that. Humperdinck jumped from ship to shore. A plank was lowered, and the whites were led to the ground. Of all his accomplishments, none pleased the prince as did these horses. Someday, he would have an army of them, but getting the bloodlines perfect was a slow business. He now had four whites, and they were identical. Snowy, tireless giants, twenty hands high. On flatland, nothing could catch them, and even on hills and rocky terrain, there was nothing short of Araby close to their equal. The prince, when rushed, rode all four, bareback, the only way he ever rode, riding one, leaving three, changing beats in mid-stride, so that no single animal had to bear his bulk to the tiring point. Now he mounted and was gone. It took him considerably less than an hour to reach the edge of the cliff of insanity. He dismounted went to his knees, commenced his study of the terrain. There had been a rope tied around a giant oak. The bark at the base was broken and scraped, so probably whoever first reached the top untied the rope, and whoever was on the rope at that moment was 300 feet from the peak and somehow survived the climb. A great jumble of footprints caused him trouble. It was hard to ascertain what had gone on. Perhaps a conference, because two sets of footprints seemed to lead off while one remained pacing the cliff edge. Then there were two on the cliff edge. Humperdinck examined the prints until he was certain of two things. One, a fencing match had taken place. Two, the combatants were both masters. The stride length, the quickness of the foot feints, all clearly revealed to his unfailing eye, made him reassess his second conclusion. They were at least masters. Probably better. Then he closed his eyes and concentrated on smelling out the blood. Surely in a match of such ferocity, blood must have been spilled. Now it was a matter of giving his entire body over to a sense of smell. The prince had worked at this for many years. Ever since a wounded tigress had surprised him from a tree limb while he was tracking her. 
He had let his eyes follow the blood hunt then, and it had almost killed him. Now he trusted only his olfactories. If there was blood within a hundred yards, he would find it. He opened his eyes, moved without hesitation towards a group of large boulders until he found the blood drops. There were few of them, and they were dry, but less than three hours old. Humperdinck smiled. When you have the whites under you, three hours was a finger snap. He retraced the duel then, for it confused him. It seemed to range from cliff edge and back, and then return to the cliff edge. And sometimes, the left foot seemed to be leading, sometimes the right, which made no logical sense at all. Clearly, swordsmen were changing hands, but why would a master do that unless his good arm was wounded to the point of uselessness? And that clearly had not happened, because a wound of that depth would have left blood spores, and there's simply not enough blood in the area to indicate that. Strange. Strange. Humperdinck continued his wanderings. Stranger still, the battle could not have ended in death. He knelt by the outline of a body. Clearly, a man had lain unconscious here. But again, no blood. There was a mighty duel, Prince Humperdinck said, directing his comment towards Count Rugen, who had finally caught up, together with a contingent of a hundred mounted men-at-arms. My guess would be, and for a moment the prince paused, following footsteps, would be that whoever fell here ran off there, and he pointed off one way, and that whoever was a victor ran off along the mountain path in almost precisely the opposite direction. It is also my opinion that the victor was following the path taken by the princess. Shall we follow them both? the count asked. I think not, Prince Humperdinck replied. Whoever is gone is of minimal importance, since whoever has a princess is the whoever we're after. And since we don't know the nature of the trap we might be being led into, we need all the arms we have in one band. Clearly, this has been planned by countrymen of Gilder, and nothing must ever be put past them. You think this is a trap, then? the Count asked. I always think everything's a trap until proven otherwise, the Prince answered, which is why I'm still alive. And with that, he was back aboard a white and galloping. When he reached the mountain path where the hand fight happened, the prince did not even bother dismounting. Everything that could be seen was quite visible from horseback. Someone has beaten a giant, he said, when the count was close enough. The giant has run away. Do you see? The count, of course, saw nothing but rock and mountain path. I would not think to doubt you. And look there, cried the prince, because now he saw, for the first time, in the rubble of the mountain path, the footsteps of a woman. The princess is alive. And again, the whites were thundering across the mountain. When the count caught up with them again, the prince was kneeling over the still body of a hunchback. The count dismounted. Smell this, the prince said, and he handed up a goblet. Nothing, the count said. No odor at all. Io came. The prince replied, I will bet my life on it. I know of nothing else to kill so silently. He stood up then. The princess was still alive. Her footprints followed a path. He shouted at the hundred mounted men. There will be great suffering in Gilder if she dies. On foot now, he ran along the mountain path, following the footsteps that he alone could see. And when those footsteps left the path for wilder terrain, he followed still. Strung out behind him, the Count and all the soldiers did their best to keep up. 
Men stumbled, horses fell, even the count tripped from time to time. Prince Humperdinck never even broke stride. He ran steadily, mechanically, his barrel legs pumping like a metronome. It was two hours after dawn when he reached the steep ravine. Odd, he said to the count, who was tiring badly. The count only continued to breathe deeply. Two bodies fell to the bottom, and they did not come back up. That is... That's odd, the count managed. No, that isn't what's odd, the prince corrected. Clearly, the kidnapper did not come back up because the climb was too steep, and our cannons must have let him know they were closely pursued. His decision, which I applaud, was to make better time running along the ravine floor. The count waited for the prince to continue. It's just odd that a man who's a master fencer, a defeater of giants, an expert of the use of iocane powder, would not know what this ravine opens into. And what is that? asked the count. The fire swamp, said Prince Humperdinck. Then we have him, said the count. Precisely so. It was a well-documented trait of his to smile only just before the kill. His smile was very much in evidence now. Wesley, indeed, had not the least idea that he was racing dead into the fire swamp. He knew only, once Buttercup was down at the ravine bottom beside him, that the climb out would take, as Prince Humperdinck had assumed, too much time. Wesley noted only that the ravine bottom was flat rock, and heading in the general direction he wanted to follow. So he and Buttercup fled along, both of them very much aware that gigantic forces were following them, and undoubtedly cutting into their lead. The ravine grew increasingly sheer as they went along, and Wesley soon realized that whereas once he probably could have helped her through the climb, now there was simply no way of doing so. He had made his choice, and there was no changing possible. Wherever the ravine led was their destination, and that, quite simply, was that. At this point in the story, my wife wants it known that she feels violently cheated, not being allowed to see a reconciliation on the ravine floor between the lovers. My reply to her is simply this. A. Each of God's beings, from the lowliest on up, is entitled to at least a few minutes of genuine privacy. B. What actually was spoken, while moving enough to those involved at the actual time, flattens like toothpaste when transferred to paper for later reading. My dove, my only, bliss, bliss, etc. C. Nothing of importance in an expository way was related, because every time Buttercup began, tell me about yourself. Wesley quickly cut her off with, Later, beloved. Now is not the time. However, it should be noted, in fairness to all, that 1. He did weep. 2. Her eyes did not remain precisely dry. 3. There was more than one embrace. And 4. Both parties admitted that, without any qualifications whatsoever, they were more than a little glad to see each other. Besides, 5. Within a quarter of an hour, they were arguing. It began quite innocently, the two of them kneeling, facing each other, Wesley holding her perfect face in his quick hands. When I left you, he whispered, you are already more beautiful than anything I dared to dream. In our years apart, my imaginings did their best to improve on your perfection. At night, your face was forever behind my eyes. And now, I see that vision who kept me company in my loneliness was a hag compared to the beauty now before me. 
Enough about my beauty, Buttercup said. Everyone always talks about how beautiful I am. I've got a mind, Wesley. Talk about that. Throughout eternity, I shall do that very thing, he told her. But now, we haven't time. He made it to his feet. The ravine fall had shaken and battered him, but all his bones survived the trip uncracked. He helped her to her feet. Wesley, Buttercup said then, just before I started down after you, while I was still up there, I could hear you saying something, but the words were indistinct. I've forgotten what it was. Terrible liar. He smiled at her and kissed her cheek. It's not important, believe me. The past has a way of being past. We must not begin with secrets from one another. She meant it. He could tell that. Trust me, he tried. I do. So tell me your words, or I shall be given reason not to. Wesley sighed. What I was trying to get through to you, beloved sweet. What I was, as a matter of accurate fact, shouting with everything I had left was, Whatever you do, stay up there. Don't come down here, please. You didn't want to see me. Of course I wanted to see you. I just didn't want to see you down here. Why ever not? Because now, my precious, we're more or less kind of trapped. I can't climb out of here and bring you with me without it taking all day. I can get myself out, most likely, without it taking all day. But with the addition of your lovely bulk, it's not about to happen. Nonsense. You climbed the cliffs of insanity, and this isn't nearly that steep. And it took a little out of me, too, let me tell you. And after that little effort, I tangled with the fellow who knew a little something about fencing. And after that, I spent a few happy moments grappling with a giant. And after that, I had to outfake a Sicilian to death when any mistake meant that it was a knife in the throat for you. And after that, I run my lungs out in a couple of hours. And after that, I was pushed 200 feet down a rock ravine. I'm tired, Buttercup. Do you understand tired? I put in the night, is what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not stupid, you know. Quit bragging. Stop being rude. When was the last time you read a book? The truth now. And picture books don't count. I mean something with print in it. Buttercup walked away from him. There are other things to read than print, she said. And the princess of Hammersmith is displeased with you and is thinking seriously of going home. With no more words, she whirled into his arms then, saying, Oh, Wesley, I didn't mean that. I didn't. I didn't. Not a single syllable of it. Now, Wesley knew that she meant to say not a single syllable of it, because the syllabub was something you ate, with cream and wine mixed in together to form the base. But he also knew an apology when he heard one. So he held her very close, and shut his loving eyes, and only whispered, I knew it was false. Believe me, every single syllabub. And that out of the way, they started running as fast as they could along the flat rock floor of the ravine. Wesley, naturally enough, was considerably ahead of Buttercup with the realization that they were heading into the fire swamp. Whether it was a touch of sulfur riding a breeze or a flick of yellow flame far ahead in the daylight, he could not say for sure. But once he realized what was about to happen, he began as casually as possible to find a way to avoid it. A quick glance up the sheer ravine sides ruled out any possibility of his getting Buttercup past the climb. He dropped to the ground, as he had been doing every few minutes, to test the speed of their trackers. Now he guessed them to be less than a half hour behind in gaining. He rose and ran with her, 
faster, neither than spending breath in conversation. It was only a matter of time before she understood what they were about to be into, so he decided to beat back her panic in any way possible. I think we can slow down a bit now, he told her, slowing down a bit. They're still well behind. Buttercup took a deep breath of relief. Wesley made a show of checking their surroundings. Then he gave her his best smile. With any luck at all, he said, we should soon be safely in the fire swamp. Buttercup heard his speech, of course, but she did not. She did not take it well. A few words now on two related subjects. One, fire swamps in general, and two, the Florin Gilder fire swamp in particular. One, fire swamps are, of course, entirely misnamed. As to why this has happened, no one knows, though probably the colorful quality of the two words together is enough. Simply, there are swamps which contain a large percentage of sulfur and other gas bubbles that burst continually in the flame. They are covered with lush giant trees that shadow the ground, making the flame burst seem particularly dramatic. Because they are dark, they are almost always quite moist, thereby attracting the standard insect and alligator community that prefers a moist climate. In other words, a fire swamp is just a swamp. Period. The rest is embroidery. 2. The Florin Gilder fire swamp did and does have some particular odd characteristics. A. The existence of snow sand. And B. The presence of the R-O-U-S, or ruse, about which a bit more later. Snow sand is usually, again, incorrectly identified with lightning sand. Nothing could be less accurate. Lightning sand is moist and basically destroys by drowning. Snow sand is powdery as anything short of talcum and destroyed by suffocation. Most particularly, though, the Florin Gilder fire swamp was used to frighten children. There was not a child in either country that at one time or another was not, when misbehaving very badly, threatened with abandonment in the fire swamp. Do that one more time, you're going to the fire swamp is as common as clean your plate, people are starving in China. And so, as children grew, so did the danger of the fire swamp and their enlarging imaginations. No one, of course, ever actually went into the fire swamp. Although, every year or so, a diseased ruse might wander out to die, and its discovery would only add to the myth and the horror. The largest known fire swamp is, of course, within a day's drive of Perth. It's impenetrable, and over 25 miles square. The one between Florin and Gilder was barely a third that size. No one had been able to discover if it was impenetrable or not. Buttercup stared at the fire swamp. As a child, she had once spent an entire nightmared year convinced that she was going to die there. Now, she could not move another step. The giant trees blackened the ground ahead of her. From every part came the sudden flames. You cannot ask it of me, she said. I must. I once dreamed I would die there. So did I. So did we all. Were you eight that year? I was. Eight? Six? I, I can't remember. Wesley took her hand. She could not move. Must we? Wesley nodded. Why? Now is not the time. He pulled her gently. She still cannot move. Wesley took her in his arms. Child, sweet child, I have a knife. 
I have my sword. I did not come across the world to lose you now. Buttercup was searching somewhere for a sufficiency of courage. Evidently, she found it in his eyes. At any rate, hand in hand, they moved into the shadows of the fire swamp. 916-633-1537. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com. Leave a review on Spotify. It only takes a few seconds. Leave a review on Podchaser. Copy and paste that in the Apple Podcast. Copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can also donate to the show through patreon.com slash single simulcast uh, or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. There is a tip jar. I cannot express how much joy I got in reading this segment, reading the part with the Sicilian Bassini and the, the, the think off. And a lot of y'all who saw the movies, you know. Uh, how it all played out and everything but the fact that they were able to put a battle of wits into something this lush and this well written i love a good book where i don't have to sit back and and parse through the grammatical errors or the just inanities of life and i don't in this book everything is laid out and i could just enjoy it and drink it in like a really 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 cold blackberry lemonade Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm out you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. <laughs>